the kind of planning that works is kind of very near-term planning. So planning what you'll do in the next hour is much more in tune with reality than planning even what you're going to do with your week, let alone your, your month or your year. So I have given up completely the idea of like, in six days' time, I'm going to reach that milestone and that milestone. But I'm really trying to zero in on, in 45 minutes' time, there will be 400 more words on this, on this document. Welcome to Routines and Ruts, the podcast sharing conversations about the daily rhythms and inevitable stumbles in our creative lives. I'm your host, Madeline Dorr, a freelance writer and person who's very much fumbling through the creative process too. I run an interview project called Extraordinary Routines, where I also conduct life experiments and muse on various topics about the creative process. I also run an event series called Sci Project Sessions, which is popping up in a few different cities as a way for people to find time, have some accountability, and that all-important quiet for whatever creative project or task they've been putting off. So I personally know a lot about putting things off, including this podcast, and so I really wanted to delve further into the highs and lows of creative life. This podcast delves further into the blocks that we encounter along the way, and my generous guests talk about the days that they find flow and the days that go completely off track. They open up about things like resilience and rejection, motivation and procrastination, successes and setbacks, and how extraordinary lessons can be found amongst it all. In a poem called The Summer Day, the late Mary Oliver describes how a grasshopper has flung into the palm of her hand to eat sugar before snapping its wings open and floating away. She writes, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me. What else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Figuring out what we plan to do with our one wild and precious life is no small feat. Our relationship to life is a relationship to limitation. The limitation of one wild and precious life, the limitation of how the moments will unfold, the limitation of not being able to get everything we plan to do done in our lifetime. As Sylvia Plath once wrote in her diaries, I can never read all the books I want. I can never be all the people I want and live all the lives I want. I can never train myself in all the skills I want. And why do I want? I want to live and feel all the shades, tones and variations of mental and physical experience possible in my life. And I am horribly limited. We might be horribly limited, but our limitations can also be motivating. It can help us let go to stop midway through books we aren't enjoying and focus on the ones we do, to seize the next 45 minutes in front of us instead of planning an entire day, week, month, life that can go in any direction or actually be not what we want in the first instance. This week's guest has spent the last few years delving into this topic of limitation through researching and writing his latest book on time. Oliver Berkman is a British author and journalist living in Brooklyn. He writes a popular weekly column for The Guardian on social psychology, productivity, and the science of happiness called This Column Will Change Your Life. And he's also the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. 
Back in 2017, I met Oliver for a coffee in New York, and we spoke a lot about how routine can serve as an emotional need for control, as well as giving up the fantasy of the perfect routine, something we're both drawn to, but also resent and resist. In this conversation, we continue on from these discussions and delve further into how he's moved through a rut really centered around the book writing process. We also speak about how goals can become redundant very quickly, his love of the Kanban method, self-control and distraction, parenting, shadow work, insomnia, and also how we can get out of a rut by breaking our own rules. And so in honor of how our lives ebb and flow, about how sometimes we can be really in a routine, but sometimes we can be in a rut, and how that can change hour by hour, here is Oliver Berkman on how he is doing today. Um, Today has not been a good day work-wise. Today has been a a day where I'm uh, too tired and the morning got off to a sort of an annoying start and I have not really done any of the things that I intended to. Now, as I can also say, if you want to know, I think this day has occurred in the context of a really good, slightly broader period of time, but I won't lie about, uh, about today. This may be the most constructive and enjoyable thing I've done already do with my day so well not to put any pressure on (laughs) well so I guess if we take a step back then into this broader context of better days Mm -hmm. what what have you been working on I'm working on a book which I was working on when we last met uh, a long time ago and um, what has happened in the interim is that uh, well I think my wife had had our son when when we met but only sort of a few months months ago right and uh, he just turned three and it turns out that the first kind of two years of uh, having a child, if you're me anyway, uh, make it very, very difficult to do all that much else. So I'm now sort of uh, several extensions to my contract later. I'm now really in the closing phase of finishing this uh, book uh, manuscript, the, the main sort of first draft. What's been the, obviously time potentially could have been a struggle or just changes to your routine with the newborn, but has there, what else is difficult about the book writing process? Is it the coming up with the idea and actually settling with something you'll enjoy enough to explore? The main thing that's been difficult for me has been a really good thing. This is probably true of all kind of large creative projects, but certainly when you're writing about psychology in a book form, you know, if you're on your own psychological journey like we all are, I think you're. It, as time passes through the project, it, it is itself like an act of discovering stuff, and so you can't. It's not a question of like you decide topic, you research it, and then you just sort of write it out mm. as at exactly as you sort of thought about it. You realise that you sort of have to change in certain ways to be able to write what the book wants to be, and you have to get quite good at sort of waiting on parts of your psychology that are maybe outside your conscious mind to see what is happening. But at the same time, you do actually need to get a move on and, and produce stuff. Well, I would imagine as a self-help writer who questions self-help in their writing, there would be a lot of overthinking, a lot of changing your mind and that need for more time. So what is the book about currently and maybe what has, how has it changed through this process? I mean, I think everything I ever write is, is on some level is just like, here's my current way of thinking about the world. Uh, and again, I suspect that's kind of universal, but maybe more disguised in some forms of, of creative work uh, than 
than for me. Um, so the book is about the, the the working subtitle is Time Management for Mortals. The uh, the idea is to think about time and how to use it and how to be productive or whatever you want to call it in a way that really takes account of our sort of limitations and the fact that we only have a limited amount of time on the planet, that we don't actually get to control an awful lot of what goes uh, on in that time or the talents and resources and social positions and money and all the rest of it that we bring. Um, and that also I hope takes a... Um, and that also, I hope, uh, brings the idea of time management into something which absolutely was not really on my mind when I very first had this idea, because it was a number of years ago now, which is this sense that I think a lot of people have now that there's a kind of civic, political, and beyond that, of course, environmental kind of, there are stages on which we sort of all feel a bit more that we need to be doing something mm-hmm. than certainly I did in, uh, you know, five years ago. So it's rather a trademark, I think, of some time management productivity books that they just assume that um, building your startup business and maybe managing your household, maybe uh, like those are the two things that anyone is going to want to care about. But uh, I sort of want to be able to care about things like activism and, and whatever it means to be a good citizen, things like that as well. So I'm just trying to take it all. The problem is as soon as I talk about this, it sounds like I'm trying to write a book about, you know, a meaning of life. But I, then again, I think kind of we all are and, what other, what other topic is uh, worth writing about? Mm, exactly. <laughs> it does um, time and our relationship to it and our limitations and our limited time really does speak to this idea of, it's like Mary Oliver's, you know, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? It's sort of, Absolutely, that yeah. does have an in- <clears throat> inherent relationship to time. I'm interested to hear more about this idea of limitations. What have been your discoveries with limitations? I mean, I can take that question in two senses. And one that I know that you have thought about and written about is like the idea of constraints that you, in some sense, apply on yourself as a way of uh, generating output or creativity or whatever. And I, and we can talk about that. I think it's really interesting. But mainly, I suppose, what I'm thinking about is it's not a question of whether it's good to have limitations. I'm talking about the kind of limitations that like they just are. Yeah. And so the question is always to do with are you going to confront it that fact or or not and i suppose part of my critique of a lot of traditional productivity advice that has really come into focus for me over the last few years is that it really acts to um enable denial and so one of the things i try to explore is this idea that you know there's more pressing in on you than you can possibly do in the time available whether that is comes from all your ambitious creative dreams for your life or it just comes from all the obligations and duties and tasks that your position in life sort of puts on you if there's more that you feel you need to do than you actually can do then like you're not going to do it all (laughs) and if you and if you don't uh, take account of that fact and if you try instead to sort of use ways of becoming more and more hyper efficient and productive so that you might one day get on top of it all you won't ever succeed but what will happen for various reasons that I go into is that you know you'll feel much busier and you will also probably end up dedicating less time to the stuff that really does matter Mm. to you so I suppose the sort of underlying ethos of at least part of this book is like okay you're definitely not going to get done or even most of the things that you want to do or you feel you ought to do, now what? And 
I don't personally find this to be a, a recipe for like a council of despair at all. I think it's absolutely brilliant and mm. incredibly energizing to really understand, as I think I have in my personal life a bit more than I did anyway, that a, a lot of the time, the thing you're trying to do to, I don't know, prove yourself or whatever it is, was like impossible all along. So, so the idea that you're ever going to render yourself into this kind of absolutely perfectly efficient, hyperproductive, the idea that any of this is ever going to be achieved is like, once you see that that's nonsense, that's just a huge relief because then you can get on with spending your limited time and using your limited abilities and resources to do as much stuff that matters as you can without this kind of agenda. feels like an immediate burden off the shoulders if you kind of accept that you're never going to kind of accomplish that all. I a tendency to create systems for myself, but the next day comes and I fail to kind of stick by that system or that routine. And then by the end of the day, I feel like a failure because I didn't meet that. But maybe it's not actually you that's a problem. It's the routine that you've invented. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I resonate with that so much. I mean, I still do this to some extent, but it's that I, I what I have come to understand, I think is how much of the time, I'm going to say we, but I suppose really I just mean me and I hope that it has some, <laughs> some uh, wider relevance, how much of the time we are acting to try to sort of feel in control of time and life and ourselves. And uh, I think those kind of system building things, certainly for me, it sounds like for you, have served that purpose a lot in life, right? It's like, now I'm finally going to like put this system in place and then I can just like cruise in autopilot through mm-hmm. a brilliantly high achieving life. But you know, there's one thing that happens a lot is that you sort of set these kind of goals and then they feel really stale and dead within about 48 hours or something. Mm-hmm. Because I think they're just not authentically suited to the actual experience of, of, of life. You, you don't have the kind of control over life that you or I have been seeking you can either constantly chase this thing that you will never achieve, or you can, at least to some extent, at least on the good days, understand that you don't. And it's not that you have no control. It's that once you see what you can't control, you sort of fall back into this kind of agency and effectiveness that you do have. You can do things much more usefully and have a bigger influence on the world, I think, if mm. you're not chasing this level of total control yeah Hmm. i would love to invite more surprises into my life somehow because i think the best things happen as a surprise whether it's our career or meeting someone that we fall in love with or whatever opportunities they're often not what we planned for yeah um but another little thread that i want to pick up there is that you have spoken a lot about goal setting and how much of goal setting can be quite futile but having process goals can be a way to counter this control. I think in in my last book where I was sort of on a on a real tear against goals, it was always the part of the book that, and I think I did say this actually, it was always the part of the book where I wasn't, I, I was at least comfortable with a kind of total rejection stance because apart from anything else, I think as biological organisms, right, we just have some goals, whether we like it or not. And then, yeah, it doesn't seem sensible to uh, then have no other goals at all for your career. I think the way I'd frame it in the context of what I'm writing about now is there's the kind of goal which is fundamentally an effort to try to control the future, to like get some reassurances from the future about how -hmm. things are going to go. Then there's the kind which is more like a statement of intentions. 
there's a writer uh, who you may well know or know his work, David Kane. The way he puts it is that, you know, you don't actually ever have any time. You have intentions. You do not have three hours in which to complete a project in the same way that you might have $3 in your pocket. You don't really have it. You expect it, but anything could happen. And so what you really have are intentions towards time. You can absolutely formulate, you know, your best case scenario or how you're going to respond if certain things happen. But you sort of withdraw from that idea that it's, you know, you throwing a lasso around the future and bringing it into uh, uh, sort of taming it. And I think the reason that distinction matters is if you do go in, head into the, to the time sort of constantly thinking that like you own it and it's yours to decide and that you have it under your control, like every single second of your day is going to provide contrary evidence of that yeah. fact. And it's just going to be very stressful because you never can predict how long something's going to take. You know, the famous Hofstadter's law that says everything is always going to take longer than you expect, even when you take Hofstadter's law into account. In other words, you can't <laughs> ever get out of this this uh, problem. You know, people aren't going to do what you want them to do. Uh, certain kinds of distraction are going to overwhelm you. And I think, you know, having a child was a really good way to see that. I don't want to make it sound like a self-help technique and I also don't think <laughs> any of this is unique to to parents at all but you know he is among other many many wonderful things a sort of constant source of destabilization of any rigid plan I might have mm. made for any hour of the day and that's that's useful. Um, I would love to kind of move into your routine in a moment and sort of hear about um, what the shape of your days look like at the moment. But I'm interested with this talk of goal setting and the futility of it perhaps, but also this idea of we have intentions, not necessarily time. I'm just curious to hear what you make of kind of manifesting and things like setting intentions or setting 10-year plans. Debbie Millman has a wonderful example. She does this exercise with her students of writing out a five-year plan and time and time again she has students come back to her and say that you know, everything has come true, even if it was wild and ambitious. So where do you think that sort of comes in? I mean, I, I think some of that kind of law of attraction business gets quite wild in terms of the sort of supernatural claims being made, and I can remain fairly mocking about, about all that probably. But um, on the other hand, I think I do have more than I used to do anyway, and at some level I hope of sort of appreciation for or humility towards like all the parts of my brain that are outside of my awareness mm. so like it's not for me to say that if I write down where how I want things to be in five years time and and put it in an envelope and put it in the attic that that won't lead to something how would I know I mean <laughs> nothing's gone the way I planned it in my life so like I, I know surely that's true for most people so so um I think it is probably important that that exercise as you describe it is 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 not the same as the kind of classic self-help goal setting which involves like trying thinking all the time about your sort of monthly quarterly annual objectives and that in my experience, it just becomes absolutely intolerable within about a week because you're no longer responding to the moment or to what matters most to you. You're trying to carry out this uh, prearranged map and it just feels like someone is 
bossing you around in a really obnoxious way, even though that person is, is yourself. Yeah, yeah I forget that I'm <laughs> the worst boss sometimes. Right. Um, well, we're all the worst. We're the worst boss to ourselves. You probably, I don't know if you do manage anyone. I basically never have in my life. <laughs> right, you'd probably be a lot nicer to them than oh, you are to yeah, yourself. Yeah, I would hope so. But the exercise, I think it's there's a website called My Tenure Plan I can send to you, but it, I think it really does circumnavigate a few things because it's about going big, sort of going to 10 years, five years, but then bringing it back to what you want your day to look like. Right. And I think that's quite, it comes back to kind of, you know, how do you want to spend your time intentionally? Right. So on that note, um, what do your days look like at the moment? You've described them previously as um, a mashup. Are they still a mashup? <laughs> uh, yes, although I wonder if, now I wonder if any anybody's day that doesn't apply to. Um, just before me and my wife moved in together and before our son came along, like I had got to a point in my life where I was like pretty set in my ways and I had sort of figured out the exact routine that I wanted to implement on a given day and I was doing it. And I think already for a while then it had started, I'd started to feel like there was something, something had gone a bit sort of calcified. What was it like just as a brief overview? About it? Oh, I, I'm, I'm someone who likes to get up really is that like five, six? Five is the earliest level. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I realise this is a um, subjective judgment. I, sometimes I hear people say that they like to get up really early, eight a.m. Like, yeah, what? <laughs> I love when um, people say that. Yes, right. Five is. I, I have never consistently for more than about two days got up any earlier than five o'clock. I'm a morning pages person, so I've done that for years and years now. And when did you first do? So that's from the artist way, I'm assuming. Yeah. Well. Yes, I'm not sure I'm following her instructions properly. But, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, did you ever read the artist's way? I did, and I read. Well, I read the section on morning pages. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't complete the whole. Ah, course. I just just completed it for the first time this you year, which was it? quite an achievement. Um, I've been putting it on and off for five years, and finally did the twelve weeks. And it was it was great to have that bedrock for twelve weeks. I ended up in New York at the end of it, so that was some kind of wow, yeah, magical ending. Um, yeah. So as far as possible, I have kept the morning pages up. There were big chunks of. Uh, our son's earliest days when that was not going to be uh, feasible. The big thing for me, just to sort of treat you too much like a therapist, but the the, the big thing for me over the last few years has, has been like unclenching from those routines. So it's not not to do with like discovering the perfect routine, but actually easing up a little bit on the on the need for one. One of the things I have found really useful is the idea of like decoupling all this from specific times. So it's not like I try to get up at X o'clock and then I try to do this for this amount of time. When it works well, I sort of have a running order in my mind, right? So it's like, as and when I get the opportunity this morning, I'm going to write in my journal for three pages, do 10 minutes meditation. That's as much as I'm doing at the moment. Maybe sometimes there are like sort of bodyweight exercises in the mix there as well, whatever. So these kind of things that Previously, I would have been like, I'm going to do this at five o'clock every day and this at 5.45 every day, which was very frustrating because even then I didn't, I wasn't reliably hitting those times. And so I would feel like a failure for no good reason. But now I'm just like, I'm going to slot those three things in. And sometimes they're going to all be done by 6.15 in the morning. And sometimes it's going to be like 10 o'clock because I have spent an hour playing with Play-Doh and... Uh, Living. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and making uh, and making breakfast for people. So um, so that's a kind of middle way, I feel like, that idea that you have like a running order of things that you want to do. Yeah, I like that. Um, Austin Cleon, who I interviewed earlier this year, has checkboxes. So he's right. is reading, walking, and writing. Right. And that's a day. 
If he yeah. checks those boxes, yeah. it's a good day, but not every day. You don't want to set up a system that makes spending time with your child or whatever other important thing you might have in your life aside from your work, you don't want to make it so that you're somehow subtly failing at implementing your life plan when what you're doing is as rewarding and important as mm. as just sort of hanging out, reading storybooks or, or, or whatever. And I think there is a risk of that. I mean, obviously, many people have far less flexibility of their schedules than me or you, and they just have to be at a desk at a certain time, and that's the way of the world. And that, I don't want to sort of overlook that. But like, I still think that for me, just caring about all these kinds of orderly, controlly things a bit less is, mm. the, is, the, is the challenge. And I'm no way through it yet. I'm like, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not reached some position of perfection on, on any of this. Are you close to sort of seeing what, because it sounds like what you're talking about in some ways is attention or being present in the moment rather than thinking about a to-do list. I think I'm better at that than I was. I might just be much better at seeing myself doing it. I think I, I definitely understand my kind of built-in anxiety and controlliness and all this stuff much better than I did. I think I deal with it somewhat better than I did. Mm. But, you know, maybe it comes in stages, you sort of figure out your patterns ahead of um, kind of letting go of them completely. I don't know. I, I just recently read a book by a psychotherapist called Bruce Tift called Already Free, which has made a big impression on me. And an interesting part of his outlook is to take these kind of things that frustrate you about yourself or about your relationship or about or any other aspect of your life and be like, what would it be like if like that never went away? Like if basically to the end of my days, this kind of frustrating problematic trait was present and it's actually very liberating in many ways mm. to be like oh that'd be okay yeah I mean yeah you know I probably am not at this point you know going to going to suddenly wake up one day in a few years time and be like oh great now I'm a perfect person and really easy to get on with and you know never waste any time and blah 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 um and again that's like realizing that you're not going to get everything done I think exactly. it's, it's, an, it's an embrace of uh of limitation yeah mm, yes I like that a lot um so I am curious then as someone who has a weekly deadline with a weekly column um and you've been writing it for over a decade now <laughs> oh yes that's a lot of ideas um the column's called this column will change your life I'm curious to hear maybe how you research that column how you keep track of different studies that might be coming out what kind of things that you read what goes into that column if you do have more of a um you know, mashup of a day, but still that weekly deadline. It's a big mix. One of the things that I realised quite a long time now, I think, in writing that is that, you know, the, the idea that you need like a peg for everything you're doing, a hook. You need the, the thing you're writing has to respond to something that happened in the news in the last few days. Or that if an article or an essay on a similar subject has appeared in another publication in the last few weeks, then you can't do it yourself. And it was really, really helpful, I think. I don't know, maybe some of my editors would disagree, but I think it was really, really helpful to um, learn to like say, well, no, what do I feel like is really important to say? What do I think might be really useful to people? And sure, you know, if it can be related to new research, that's often, that is often um, what provokes a given topic, but it doesn't need to be. Like, surely what matters in a column like that is that you're saying something you think is worth saying. Yeah, I've just completely, like, I mean, you could say abandoned standards, I suppose. 
but uh, you know so so it's totally eclectic and the, the most the difficult the hardest part for me is keeping just literally keeping track like how do I make sure that if in a swimming pool and uh have some random thought that it doesn't just flee my tired brain once and for all then and that it's kind of there to be uh selected from so uh, do you use a notebook then or do you have have notes in your phone or the, the swimming pool is a bad example because nothing, <laughs> i have nothing in the swimming pool i'm sure that someone has invented something for <laughs> recording ideas in the swimming pool i have um found very useful an app uh an ios app called brain toss it's not the greatest of names perhaps but um this is a an app that just does one thing. Like it opens, you open it, you type something in, you press send, and it goes to your email inbox. That's oh, literally great. it. Yeah. You don't need to. It's not like sending yourself an email because then you see your inbox and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, better mm-hmm. deal with all these kind of other things. Yeah, I think you can do a voice memo with this as well, but I I don't usually do that. Um, so that is one simple way of doing it, and it just means that as long as you have a point in your day or your week where you're properly processing your email which I'm not necessarily great at, uh, you will pick those all up and add them to a, add them to a list. Mm-hmm. So that I find really useful. And what's great about it is that it doesn't do anything else, right? I mean, what's great about it is that you don't get to see your email or surf the web while, exactly. you're, while you're trying to do it. Yeah. yeah. So with um, maybe you experience both conundrums, but is there ever idea overwhelm with the amount of um, brain tosses you're sending? <laughs> or is has there ever been a period where you think, I I can't think of what to write for this column anymore. It's so cyclical that, that yeah, yeah I've, I've sort of given up ever thinking I can't think what to write anymore because it literally is just what's on my mind. It's evolved. I mean, not that anyone cares apart from me, but like what I do in that column has got nothing to do with what I did at the beginning, really, I don't think, because it's this amazingly privileged position that, you know, I, I don't expect to have forever um, to just sort of write for five or six hundred words about what I think is interesting and important so the other thing I definitely kind of blatantly do is like experiment with things that I'm thinking about for part of the book I'm writing you know you sort of like sort of put out an idea in a kind of prototype form and see how people respond to it I mean it really is just kind of hopefully my side of a kind of big disorganized conversation about stuff that seems important i think i write about in some sense write about sort of politics and global things much more than i used to because as i say for me anyway um that suddenly seems much more uh urgent than it than it used to um so i don't know that i have a great technique for um for doing this specific kind of thing more than that I, for whatever reason, has seemed to have lucked into a thing that is sort of infinitely flexible to do whatever I, almost whatever I want with. Um, although if there is a lesson to be drawn from that, I think it's probably just that like if you, to the extent that you're writing about stuff or producing in any other medium, you know, stuff that you actually like seriously care about, you know, it gets you a long way towards uh, finding an audience. I, I think i hope um uh rather than trying to sort of game it by by um some other following some other strategy well i i think it also speaks to doing one thing well or having one quite strong focus be it in a week or a day Mm -hmm. or a career yeah whereas i feel sometimes i can be quite scattered especially as a freelance writer who doesn't necessarily have a set column it can can feel like you're sort of 
opening the door somewhere, trying to push it down somewhere else. It's closing over there um, and it can be hard to get momentum. But do you think that having that colon for as long as you've had has allowed for momentum and then maybe even being able to tackle bigger projects like a book? Uh, I think that's probably true. I mean, the, the, the less flattering way of putting that would be that I've got people breathing down my neck if I don't like get a move on right and so a good thing about external deadlines is like there comes a point when you just have to say well no this isn't a very good idea but I don't have any others and um, I'm going to be too late if I I'm usually a bit late anyway but I'm going to be unacceptably late if I don't go with it and what you find then fascinatingly is that at least sometimes those are the best columns Interesting. Because you haven't overthought it? Yeah, or because, I don't know, because you just have to make the best of what you've got and then you actually really put the effort into making the best of it. The other thing that I've probably got to go on and on about, or for 30 seconds anyway, is in terms of getting these things done and not just opening 20 doors at once in the last year or so has been um, the uh, personal Kanban, which I know is not brand new. You've probably done a lot on, but for me, it was a big, a big uh, discovery. So that also has been really important in mm. kind of finishing things that get started. So do you have a big sort of wall of post-its for the campaign? Just a folding file uh-huh. with mini post-its. But I think, um, I don't even think the Kanban, I think that's very important, that visualised part. But the, the, the rule that is so central to this that has made a big difference to me is this idea of limiting your work in progress. Mm. So um, I don't know how... Um, universal this is to kind of different Kanban implementations, but just this idea that um, you have, say, um, three things that you're working on at any one time, or maybe one major project and two to three small tasks or something like that, and and you don't put anything new into the column of what you're doing right now until one of those has been completed and moved out um or abandoned you know you can just say this is this is a dead idea i'm gonna throw it away but so you know when my column is that thing i'm going to be working on that column until it's done and i'm going to resist the urge to move to an interesting bit of the book or to like i don't know try and redesign my website that's desperately in need of being redesigned um until i've moved that one out Sounds like you do all this already, so I don't know. I'm probably telling you. Oh things no, you know I, very well. I definitely am not very good at having <laughs> well, that one well, thing. What's really fascinating about it is like it, it has all these weird effects that uh, you were, you're not expecting. So, for example, it really sort of naturally forces you to like right size tasks because if you have one, if you're going to be working on one or two major things at any one time, you can't put like write book mm, in that song. Yeah, just linger there that, forever. That, right. And that's just going to like um, uh, sort of deadlock your whole system for, mm. for ages. So then you have to be like, okay, well, what could I actually do in the next hour or maybe it's the next three days? You know, what would be the the chunk that would make sense? The other thing that really helps with, and, it's, and I mention it in my book because it is relevant to this idea of limitation, is like it feels like you're imposing a limitation on yourself. But really all you're doing mainly is bringing into conscious awareness a limitation that you already had. And it makes you realize that if you don't approach work in this way, like before I did this, on some weird subconscious level, I would think of myself as having about like 35 irons in the fire at any one time. But it was bullshit because, you know, I obviously wasn't getting around to 33 of them. And then the other problem when you're in that situation, 
in my experience, is that when any one of them gets tough and difficult, you just bounce off into another one, right? So mm -hmm. you never actually push through when you need to push through. That's so. where I'm at, Oliver. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that, is is why, that is why I would seriously recommend <laughs> saying, like, three things on my plate at any one time. And again, it doesn't need to be record and produce a podcast series. It just needs to be one mm. identifiable task related to that. Then when that space is freed up, then you can put, you know, pay bills or uh, write to an old friend or whatever it is, you know, and then and I just love it. Because, and the sense of achievement is much more genuine. Like you, you don't, it's much rarer, I think, when I'm using that system well, that I sort of feel like, well, what did I do today? It's like, did those six post-its today? <laughs> there you go. It's very tangible. Yeah, right. I love it. In so many senses, it's, you know, really that one step at a time. And also you're not going to do everything. Right, right, right. And you already weren't going to do everything. That's the yes, thing I keep exactly. trying to sort of to emphasize. It's not that you're somehow accepting a lower standard. It's that, like, the lower standard is called being human. And we can either, like, mm. <laughs> confront it or not. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, how do you think you'll approach writing the book? How will you chunk it down step by step? I tend to try to do the writing in very short bursts, but lots of them. So I try to sort of, I would do like a 45 minute writing period and try to get a few hundred words down in that, in that time. And if you do a few of those in a day, that's a good day's, that's a mm. good day's writing. A kind of planning that works is kind of very near term planning. So planning what you'll do the next hour is much more in tune with reality than planning even what you're going to do with your week, let alone your, your month or your, yeah. So I have given up completely the idea of like, in six days time, I'm going to reach that milestone and that milestone. But I'm really trying to zero in on in 45 minutes time, there will be 400 more words on this in this document. But books are very strange. Like it really feels like I've worked very hard and written, written many, many days, you know, a good thousand words. But, uh, you know, it feels like I've done that on hundreds and hundreds of days. But I can't have done because, like, a full-length book is 70,000 words and I'm not there yet. And uh, so I can't have done a 1,000 words on 70 days by mathematically, by definition. So it's very odd because I don't feel like I was lazy. If we knew where the time went, we wouldn't necessarily let it go there. Mm. Um, and, you know, I do do other things. I freelance for other people and, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of other stuff that, that goes on. So it's not like I... It's not like I can't come up with things to fill the time when I'm trying to avoid uh, confronting some difficult part of the book or something. <laughs> so what uh, are kind of common distractions? Well, the one that most closely resembles like a struggle with a class A drug or something is Twitter, for sure, for me. <laughs> um, I go between like days of spending far too many hours on it and then using various apps to ban myself from it for like three weeks at a time. <laughs> do they work? Um, they do. Well, yeah. I finally found one called uh, self-control. Although you can remove it once mm. you um, have put it down, it's it's just about complicated enough. Yeah, I'm just yeah. Yeah, terrible with the self-control element of just deleting the app design to help right, give me right, self-control. Right, right, right. These kind of things where you block the external source of the irritation are helpful. But the thing I'm trying to get a handle on is this idea that it's true that Twitter distracts us. It's true that there is a huge corporate uh, industry designed to monetize our attention and take our attention away from the goals we have for it. But it's also true that we kind of want to be distracted, that we're fleeing some kind of inner distress or pain every time we do that. And the simplest form of pain is just, you know, writing this passage in the book is kind of hard and difficult. Mm. And it suddenly feels so much easier and lovelier to, to go and you know, dive, plunge into Twitter. 
equally it could be worse. I mean, you know, when you're going through something much more serious in your personal life or something, again, you know, there are reasons. That, and it's not that we can overcome that all the time. But I do think that um, it's really great to see that you're sort of trying to run away from something when you seek out distraction and that to some extent just kind of expecting difficult work to feel a bit unpleasant is the answer as soon as you stop thinking my day at my writing desk should be unbroken bliss mm. uh, it becomes way easier to stay with it when it when it isn't yeah or even that you have to feel like doing the work that there's you know the muse will right appear only when you actually kind of sit down to do it yeah and but also but even i mean firstly yes if you do it you'll probably feel much better about it but even if you don't feel much better about it, like, that's okay. <laughs> it's okay to spend a few hours doing something important and it not to feel blissful. And most of the problem for me with distraction is is when I'm in a rut of expecting it to be otherwise. I came across an amazing quote just the other day from Charlotte Jocko Beck, the Zen teacher who died a few years ago. What makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. Mm, <laughs> this is like yes. such a great life philosophy <laughs> and it applies certainly to kind of work sometimes feeling not pleasant in its, in its difficulty. So I guess after a day of a complete mashup of column writing, book writing, can banning, um, what does late afternoon, evening tend to look like? Well, if I'm going to exercise properly, that's where I'll happen at like sort of 3, 3.30 because I'm starting so early. I'm like getting very tired by about sort of two, two thirty, three o'clock. We really have gotten into no particular routine with uh, with my son and my wife's work. So you know, some days I'll be picking him up from preschool at two forty-five and mm-hmm. spend the rest of the afternoon and evening together. And then at the other extreme of that, I might get back, you know, five minutes before he goes to bed to read a story. Um, is that just managed day by day with yourself place. and your partner? Just sort of texting, or is there kind we of some? Well, I mean, we make no, we make yeah. some plans. It's not, it's not, it's not <laughs> literally. I mean, you know, he goes to preschool three days a week and isn't, doesn't on the other two, and so there are some certain rhythms. It's been a very interesting experience. In some ways, I feel like cohabiting, which I only had really started doing very little to a bit before coming parent, is in some ways even more of a challenge to your routines and your mm-hmm. controlliness than than having a child. Um, a friend of mine, Jonathan Rosen, who just wrote this great book called The Moves That Matter, um, it has a, it, it, it's a sort of book of life wisdom, but he's a, form, a chess grandmaster, so it's kind of through the lens of chess. But he has some very interesting observation there about how actually, you know, at least for maybe for the first few years, it's not becoming a parent for a man in a heterosexual relationship. Even if you're doing a big chunk of your duties, as I hope I am, it's not that's not the hard part because it's actually kind of really fun to hang out with small children. The hard part is the different relationship it places you in with your adult partner who you've, you know, and it's sort of, I don't mean to say this in any way that implies anything other than the best things about my wife, but like, that's like, like sharing your life with another adult human being with their own interests and projects and personality is like super challenging. (laughs) <laughs> with or without child as you yes, say right yeah. absolutely um and negotiating so, the routine and the shared calendars it's it sort of doubles everything right absolutely yeah and you know it's um it's a sort of famous and i think justified critique from sort of feminist writers and labor historians and people that even when a couple shares the responsibilities in a household 
it's often the woman who does the sort of coordinating, the like they call mm. it the worry work or designated warrior or whatever yes. it is, right? So you the have emotional to emotional like, labor, right? But also you have to just keep track about. So often, what often I think how couples organize the work is that they may do something like fifty percent of the tasks, but it's basically the guy going and getting. He's getting told tasks by his wife from a to-do list. She still has to maintain the to-do list and make sure everything's on it. I don't think we do that in my relationship. I think we're much better at splitting the sort of worry, coordination, are we looking ahead to this and that. But even then you realise that someone's got to coordinate who's worrying about what. So there's a kind of infinite <laughs> regress. And it does just seem like it's, it's sort of exponential. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, it's not just that you have to think about one other person or two other people if you have a child or something like that it's 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 just a whole extra layer of complexity to everything and also sort of emotional complexity because like people are in good moods and bad moods and people are sometimes one person's totally exhausted and the other person can pick up the slack but sometimes both people are totally exhausted it's like... <laughs> how people do it baffles me <laughs> so is this quite different you think because you wrote quite beautifully about shadow work if i recall yeah, I think, I mean, as I recall, it was a while ago now, I think, I think that what I was writing about there was more these kind of tasks that get created in the, in the world. Like, you know, just one of the things that, that others have observed a lot is the way that the convenience revolution of the internet makes it look like everything's much easier, but actually it sort of has the effect of shifting a huge burden of admin onto mm. us. So, you know, back in the day, you might ring a travel agent, lay out what you needed for a trip, get a bill, and it was all done. Now you don't have to worry about that. You can do it directly, but that just right. means you have to, like, you know, pick through all the flights. And so I think that kind of shadow work, or even just, like, you know, self-service checkouts in stores, my particular hate. <laughs> but yeah, now why, don't you, why don't you do that work as well? It's like, okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, I guess having said all of that, it's either makes for kind of a very restful sleep because you're exhausted <laughs> or not so much if there's, like, a head full of worries. Um, so how are you with your sleep? My my issue has always been that I get to sleep very easily, but then in a sort of cyclical way, I then wake up mm. two few hours later and uh, have a sort of patchy rest of the night. So I do, insomnia is a thing, it has been a thing for me. Um, I think I've basically got it managed now, not, not eliminated. Um, Anything that helped with insomnia? Well, this is like the archetypal, it's like the canonical case of... If you could only give up your mistaken belief in a cure, you would be fine, right? Because the only problem with being awake for an hour or so or two in the middle of the night, I mean, there's much more chronic insomnia that I don't suffer from, but um, the only real problem is that you're trying to get back to sleep, mm. I, I think. And if you could just be fine with it, uh, if you could rem remind yourself and remember that actually it doesn't usually totally sabotage your day to be a little tired if you didn't have the anxiety about the fact that you're awake, you probably wouldn't be awake. So it's the sort of, it's the purest expression of that stupid paradox about, you know, trying too hard to do the thing that you want to do. Um, so that is helpful, just that recognition. And then the other thing uh, that, that I've done is kind of try successfully to give up everything that looks like a, like a crutch. Like, you know, over-the-counter medication or herbal tea or having to have things just right. Like, the more that you can, like, give all that up, the more you find yourself trusting yourself to sleep again. I don't know. Is this something mm. you... Is this a thing for you? Not insomnia. I find it difficult to 
wake up in the morning, so I right. suffer more from sleep inertia. Right. The snooze alarm right. <laughs> is very appealing, whereas getting to sleep is usually fine if I haven't had too much coffee that day. Or, right, right, right. Yeah, so. Well, I just wonder also, if it, is, it, is it time of day related? Because my, my wife's big challenge is that in, an ideal, in her ideal sleep world, she would not be even thinking about going to sleep till like one in the morning. Mm. And then she would probably get up at about 10. Yeah. Um, but that's just not compatible with... The world as it's exactly. organized. It's really laziness. It's just a different phase of, of rhythm. Yeah. Mm. Well, then, yeah, maybe again, it's just about being okay with that. And I've got more flexibility as a freelancer. So right, right. I could have that rhythm if I let go of the guilt about having that rhythm. Right, right, right. It's always the same thing. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> um, but were there any other parts of your day before we wind up? I don't know. I feel like my account of my afternoons and evenings hasn't given proper focus to how they're sort of they are on one hand the, the loveliest parts in many ways and then in a, on another way you know there's meals that need to be cooked and there's dishwashers that need to be loaded and it's not really anything to do with what my sort of creative ambitions for my life might be um and on the uh, on good days there's something very something i really like about that like something about domesticity that is just totally great and then there, and then there are other days the other thing I think there's, there's big changes that like weekends are kind of really weekends now in mm. my life. I do tend to at the moment while I'm completing this book, grab a few hours uh, on a Saturday morning to do some writing. But apart from that, there's a much clearer boundary than there used to be. And I still don't particularly find it easy to to think about a Sunday as just being like, oh, we're just going to all hang out and go to the park and do things like that. Part of me is like, why am I not producing things? But that's another point that I know you've uh thought about before that like we all need to rest some more but it's actually quite hard to bring yourself to rest even mm. when you have the the privilege to you know be able to do it in your life yeah. yeah i think that's probably the number one commonality between everyone i've interviewed often they'll say i don't know how to do nothing right i don't know how <laughs> right so yeah it's definitely something to learn i think is to be restful without any of the beating yourself up for being restful part well just like again stop expecting it to feel great at the beginning because if you're that if you're go if you've got momentum and you decide to stop like it's not going to feel great at first um and yet a lot of the sort of rhetoric i feel like around like sort of just savoring the moment it just implies that the moment you go on a walk in the park instead of working you're going to feel like ecstatic but why would you the flywheel is still going to be slowing down at that, at that point mm, yeah the rest almost isn't for that moment of rest it's for later maybe it was Hemingway who said stop while the going's good yeah. so that you've got something to come back to but mm -hmm. that stopping is incredibly difficult when you're mid-sentence but right, it yeah. later and it gets easier if you if you don't expect it to feel great at mm. the moment that you do it yeah. So this podcast is Routines and Ruts, and we've had a great impression of how both elements are found in our days and how you've sort of gone through. You didn't phrase it as a rut for the book, but it was kind of a. Uh, I think you it counts. I'm yeah. happy to call yeah. it a rut. Yeah. Okay, we can call it a rut. <laughs> um, what would be your insights that you'd share with someone else who might be going through a similar rut or something's taking a lot longer than they thought it ever would? To not expect things to be otherwise. I think that's important. I think, you know, I spent a significant proportion of one or two of the last few years being like, well, why can't I just, you know, having got up with a small baby at five o'clock in the morning and then come into work, but why can't I just keep going? It's like, well, this is an unrealistic expectation. So books just take a weirdly long time. It just takes, for some reason, it, it is much, much more than 10 times harder to write a 70,000 word book than a 7,000 word article. I mean, when you phrase it in those terms, it's like, why aren't we writing books every month? It's like, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but nobody is really. 
Uh, or not good ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> or not themselves. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think just like, who am I to know how hard a given thing is going to be, is a useful thing. Beyond that, um, for me anyway, it has been very easy to get into a rut as a result, trying to meet some kind of criterion, which isn't what actually the creative work needs to be. Actually seeing that it was meant to be something different and shifting, that was the way how I sort of got out of, of that rut. Another kind of sticking point, I think, was the idea that I had to have figured it out. You know, I think it's far more relatable, actually, and makes a better writing. Just be like, this is where I'm at with this stuff. And, you know, I yeah. think I, I, I hope that if I'm bringing something to the reader that they don't have, it is having thought about it some more and read around it and implemented it. It certainly isn't um, having created the perfect life, which, which I will now lay out so that you can copy me. If this episode sparked ideas or maybe provided comfort, I would love it if you took a moment to leave a review on iTunes. I'll pop a handy link in the bottom of the show notes so that you can find that easily from any platform that you're listening from. Your review will help me to continue to share these conversations and also might help someone new discover the podcast and get through a creative rut. You can also share that you're listening by taking a screenshot and tagging extraordinary underscore routines on Instagram. I'd love you to share any points that resonated and favorite snippets. Many thanks to songwriter Nelson Dorr for the theme music and Scott from Soundmind Editing for the patient edits. There's a lot of emphasis placed on getting started when it comes to creative projects. Just do it. Make it happen. Don't wait for inspiration. Begin now. Start before you're ready. But something that keeps coming up in my conversations with creatives is how getting started has actually a lot to do with how we stop. It came up in my previous conversation with Lauren Martin in episode seven, this idea that you can become afraid of the work if you step away from it. Another side to it came up in this conversation with Oliver Berkman about how it can be difficult to stop when we're in flow and how we might actually resent our downtime or feel guilty about doing nothing because we were in the zone with something and it feels wrong to kind of stop mid-motion. In both instances, I'm reminded of when I started running. I started really, really slowly, just two minutes at a time, that built up to five minutes to ten minutes, and over the course of many months, I reached my goal of being able to run five kilometers without stopping. There was one afternoon when I was actually going for a run with someone far more experienced than I am, and we were running, and then they just sort of stopped, and they said, well, that'll do for today. And I remember saying, but I can keep going. I could run for much, much longer than that. And they said, great, that means that you're going to be excited for your next run. You're not going to resent it because you didn't exhaust yourself or you didn't injure yourself or you didn't kind of push yourself to a point of then dreading it next time. And I think that has a lot of resemblance to the creative process. As Hemingway said, always stop while you are going good and don't think about it or worry about it until you start to write the next day. That way your subconscious will work on it all the time. But if you think about it consciously or worry about it, you will kill it and your brain will be tired before you start. So the key to starting is actually to stop at the right point so that you're not tired the next time that you go for a run or sit down at your desk to write or to illustrate or whatever creative pursuit it is. So there's my two takeaways from today. Start small with the 45 minutes you have in front of you and stop when the going is good. I'm Adeline Dorr. 
like to stay in the loop with my passion projects and writing, I'd suggest that you sign up to my newsletter. Much like this podcast, it's full of ideas on navigating the ups and downs of creative life. And I only send it out maybe every other week in a very unroutine fashion. So it's not going to crowd your inbox. You can sign up at extraordinaryroutines.com where you can also peruse an archive of written interviews, musings and life experiments from the last five years. Thanks again for listening to Routines and Ruts. And remember to learn from the pitfalls and stay curious and open to the mysterious, mundane, extraordinary creative process. Thank you.